Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, good to have you joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And um, before I record this message, I obviously want to say a word about what's going on in Israel. And I'm sure most of you or all of you are up on the news of the attacks that took place at least as of, this is October the 9th when I'm recording this message for October 11th. But this past Saturday, there was this unprovoked evil demonic attack from Hamas terrorists in Gaza coming in and invading Israel, firing rockets at them, but also coming in as individual terrorists and breaking into Israeli homes and killing the men and taking the women and children as hostages and going back to Gaza. And the latest count I've heard from Israel is that at least 700 people have died. A few of those were Americans, and it looks like a few of the hostages that are now down in Gaza are also Americans. And As I'm recording this podcast, Israel has already begun their retaliation against Hamas and is uh, taking matters into hand and doing what they must do to eradicate this demonic evil that has come against them. And so all that to say uh, that I I encourage you, I'm sure most of you already are doing this, but I just really want to encourage you to pray for Israel, pray for the safety of the people, pray for the safety of those that are not directly involved in the conflict one or one way or the other, but are perhaps caught in the crossfire and those casualties as well. And um, show your support for Israel. And I would even encourage those of you who are active on social media to put a Israeli flag there and remind your friends and uh, family to pray for the people of Israel in particular. So just wanted to say that and um, welcome to the podcast. Now we're in the book of Revelation. We're in our second study Excuse me. You know, several years ago, our church had a guest speaker that was flying out to speak at our midweek services. And so I was asked if I would be at the airport to pick this speaker up. Uh, That person sent me an email ahead of time asking me to be standing just outside the luggage carousel, holding up a sign with his name on it. Now, listen, I'm pretty good at following instructions, but if something doesn't feel quite right to me, I do tend to improvise. In that particular case, I felt like standing there and holding up a sign like a like a hired chauffeur felt kind of dumb to me, so I didn't do it. Instead, I went to the speaker's website and I examined the picture of him. He looked to be about 40 years old, and so now I was confident that I could easily identify him at the airport as I made my way there to pick him up. As all the passengers from that particular flight walked down and they were retrieving their luggage off the carousel, they're all walking past me on each side. And to my surprise, I did not recognize any of them as our guest speaker. Finally, after everyone had cleared out, there was a man of about 70 standing off to the side with his luggage. As I walked over to him, sure enough, it was the guest speaker. Well, let me just say he was not happy with me. And in fact, he said, I've been standing here for 20 minutes. Why didn't you hold up a sign like I asked you to? 
Well, I have to be honest with you. In my mind, I was thinking, why don't you put an updated picture of yourself on your website instead of something from 30 years ago? Now, that's what I thought. What I actually said was, I'm sorry for not having a sign and for having to make you wait. But let me also say, this is why passports are only good for 10 years and then they have to be renewed, hello, with an updated photo. Well, it seems to me that a lot of people today still have old pictures of Jesus in their minds. In fact, those pictures are about 2,000 years old. It might be a Christmas picture of the baby Jesus in a manger, perhaps a picture of a gentle rabbi walking through the countryside with his disciples. It might even be a Good Friday picture of Jesus, bloodied and beaten, hanging on a cross. Now, Jesus doesn't have a website, but he did give us the Bible, the Holy Word of God. And in the Bible, we have been given an updated picture of what Jesus looks like. In fact, it's given to us here in the second part of Revelation chapter 1, and so I invite you to join me there now. It helps to remember that some 65 years before John received and wrote Revelation, he had been given a glimpse of Christ's divine glory. Jesus, if you'll recall, had taken Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and uh, Christ was transfigured in their presence. In other words, John was allowed to see his divine glory, which was being veiled by his humanity. It's been rightly said that the real miracle was not that Jesus revealed his glory, but rather that he didn't shine all the time. Here in Revelation 1, the same Apostle John, writing many years later as an elderly man, describes for us this glorious vision of Jesus. What John had experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration was in fact a preview of what he would now experience on the island of Patmos. You know, one day you and I will suddenly see Jesus, and in that moment we'll see his divine glory for ourselves. And like you, I can't wait. But now let's return to our verses in Revelation 1. We're going to pick up in verse 7, which says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The overarching theme of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. This is the first instance of John using the word behold in this book, but it's something that he does many times. The word literally means to take a look or to pay attention. Here now, John says, behold, Jesus is coming. The importance of Christ's second coming in scripture is underscored by the fact that there are well over 300 Old Testament prophecies and promises that refer to it. In the New Testament, one in every 25 verses directly refers to his second coming. In fact, for every reference of, to his first coming in the Bible, there are eight references to his second coming. And next to the subject of faith, no other topic is spoken of more than the second coming. The book of Revelation then focuses on the events that will take place before, during, and after the second coming of Jesus. When Christ comes again, it will be with the clouds, and clouds in the Bible are symbolic of God's divine presence. You'll recall that in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended up to heaven 40 days after his resurrection, he did so from the top of the Mount of Olives, and as he ascended up, he was taken up in a cloud. Then as those 11 disciples stood there gawking with their mouths open, an angel appeared to them and said, You men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? 
the same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will return in the same way. Not only will Jesus return in the same way in the clouds, you know what? He's going to return to the same place, the Mount of Olives. According to the prophet Zechariah, in the 14th chapter of his Old Testament book, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord's return is coming, and in that day his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And then Zechariah adds, And so the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with him. So initially, as Jesus returns, the entire world will see it happening before he even sets foot on the Mount of Olives. So the question comes up, how can everyone see Christ returning at the same time? I mean, after all, it'll be daytime on one side of the world and nighttime on the other. Some have suggested that Christ's return will be gradual, unfolding around the world in the course of a 24-hour day. I don't necessarily agree with that. I kind of go the other direction, and I take this as every eye will see his glory in the same moment. And I believe this because the Old Testament tells us the heavens and even the highest heaven cannot contain the Lord. The earth then, which is just one tiny part of the heavens, uh, is, I believe that when Jesus comes, he, his uh, return, his glory will flood the entire world all at once. Now, I understand it's not a critical issue, and however it does unfold, uh, the whole world will see it. That's what the Bible tells us. Not only will everyone see him, but many around the world will mourn with sorrow as they see him. Once again, it's Zechariah who prophesied about the Jewish people seeing Jesus at his return. And in Zechariah 12.10, we read, They will look on him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. Thanks to Zechariah, we know that John's reference here to those who pierced him is not referring to the Roman soldiers at the crucifixion, but rather to the Jewish people who rejected him as their Messiah. Many Jews living during the tribulation will finally understand that Jesus truly was and is the Messiah. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, referring to the Gentiles and to the mourning they will experience when they see Jesus. Sadly, it will not be for them a mourning over sin in repentance, but rather mourning over their impending doom for rejecting Jesus as Lord. As we look at verse 8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, while Omega is the last letter. So Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But listen, not only is Jesus the beginning and the end, he's everything in between. He has existed eternally in the past, to the present, and into the future. And for the record, while Jesus is the beginning as well as the end, he is eternal, and therefore he actually has no beginning or end. And the same will be true for us moving forward. And so as we sing in the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, We'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Jesus is also the Almighty, referring to his eternal power, whether it's the power to create, the power to save, or the power to make all things new. Going to verse 9, we read, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was a fellow believer to those that he was writing to, 
as well as a fellow sufferer for the faith, and he was also patiently enduring. Then John identifies the place where he received and wrote Revelation, the island of Patmos. You know, that island is about 40 miles off the western coast of Asia Minor, which today is modern-day Turkey. It's not a large island. It's about 10 miles long, and at its widest point, it's about 6 miles wide. Patmos is just one of several small islands in the Aegean Sea that Rome used as places by which they could banish political and religious prisoners. John writes here that he was on Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So clearly, he was a religious prisoner. The early church writer Eusebius wrote that John was banished there by the Roman emperor Domitian in 95 AD. Then 18 months later, under the a successive emperor, Nerva, John was released back to his home in Ephesus, where he died a few years later. Now, about a thousand years after John was on Patmos, a monastery was built on the hillside and over the cave where tradition states that John was staying. And then now another thousand years later, that monastery is still there, and many pilgrims will go there to visit. It's called the Monastery of St. John, and it's built over what is called the Cave of the Apocalypse. In 2018, CNN did a travel article about the island, and they called it Patmos, the Greek island where the end of the world began. Today, many people visit Patmos either by cruise ship or where they can spend part of the day, uh, or else some of them will take a ferry from Athens, and then they're able to stay as long as they like. Uh, Patmos has a population of over 3,000 people, and the bays there are quite beautiful. Well, seeing that Paul was a Roman prisoner there on Patmos, it puts him in the same category as Paul, who wrote five of his New Testament epistles from Roman confinement. During uh, his first confinement, which we read about at the end of Acts, Paul wrote four New Testament epistles. Then he was released for a short time before being arrested once again. And the second time, he was in a Roman dungeon, most likely the Mamertine prison. And that's where Paul wrote 2 Timothy, his final epistle, before he was martyred for the faith. Here now, John was writing his final New Testament letter in confinement at the hands of Rome as well, but in a cave rather than a dungeon. But as Paul told Timothy, I suffer even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained or contained. John's circumstances also remind us of the truth that the most difficult times in our lives can also be the most fruitful. You know, John Bunyan wrote his great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, while serving a 12-year jail sentence in England for the crime of preaching the gospel without a license. So oftentimes in those difficult and dark situations, the Lord produces a time of fruitfulness. In verse 10, John describes being in the spirit. Now, I don't want to get overly mystical or weird about that. That just means that he was under the control of the Holy Spirit, and he's receiving this supernatural vision. Paul had a similar experience that he described in 2 Corinthians 12, where he wrote, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but I was caught up to the third heaven. Here now, John was having a similar experience, receiving a vision from the Lord, and it was on the Lord's day. John was seeing a vision of the resurrected Lord on the Lord's day, the day which celebrates the Lord's resurrection. 
By the way, since John had no calendar or other means of identifying what day it was, how did he know that it was Sunday? I suggest that John kept track of the days, and every Sunday he worshiped God on the Lord's day. John couldn't go to church, so the Lord brought church to John. One pastor recently said, and I appreciate these words, church is the perfect place for imperfect people to worship the perfect Savior. Here now, John begins to record for us a picture of Jesus and his present ministry. This is not a picture of the baby Jesus in a manger or the suffering Savior on the cross. This is a picture of Jesus today, which is the title of this message. John begins to describe his vision by saying that he heard a loud voice behind him that sounded like a trumpet blast. I have to admit, I appreciate people these days with louder voices because my hearing has decreased. As a result, I keep my cell phone on full volume and the, the, my ringtone on my cell phone is the theme music from the Alfred Hitchcock movie Vertigo, which is a bit intense, I admit. So the other day, my wife and I were driving along the interstate, and my phone suddenly went off with that that loud theme music, and it caused her to jump up over in her passenger seat. Her hearing is fine, by the way, so it really startled her. Hey, it could have been worse. It could have been the theme music from Psycho. Well, our friend John here was an elderly man at this point in his 90s, and so it's not hard to imagine that his hearing wasn't so good either, and so I'm sure that he appreciated the Lord's loud voice sounding forward like a trumpet blast. On a related note, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that at the moment of the rapture, the trumpet of God will sound forth. In many ways, the trumpet blast will be like reveille for all the sleeping saints who have died in Jesus. They will be awakened and called up first to meet the Lord in the air at the rapture, and then those of us who are still alive and remain will be caught up to meet them and the Lord in the air. At that same moment, we'll hear the voice of the archangel, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so perhaps the trumpet blast is to awaken the sleeping saints, while the archangel's voice is the call to the living saints. In verse 11, the loud voice of the Lord from behind John said to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you are seeing you will write in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In chapters 2 and 3, we'll be looking at what Jesus had to say specifically to each of those seven churches. I would like to highlight the fact that Jesus told John, I want you to write down what you are seeing. Therefore, John was a witness to everything that we're reading here. It was a future vision, but he was seeing it firsthand. And so just as we have um, eyewitness gospel accounts about the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus at his first coming, so do we have an eyewitness account here from John recording this vision of Christ's second coming in the future. In verse 12 then, John turns around to see the person speaking to him, and it's Jesus. As John looked, he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them he saw one like the Son of Man. Now once again, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, John had seen the glorified Lord Jesus. And even though that was many years earlier, John would have never forgotten what he saw. And what John now sees here was very much the same. 
in our introductory podcast message, we talked about, for Revelation, we talked about interpreting the symbols recorded in this book. Here then, John sees seven lampstands. And so as we discussed previously, many of the symbols found in Revelation are also explained for us in Revelation. Case in point, at the very end of this first chapter, we're told that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia Minor in John's day. And we just read the names of those seven churches there at the end of verse 11. So this is not an unsolved mystery. What John also sees is Jesus walking among the lampstands or churches. Just as Jesus walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of Babylon, so too was Jesus walking with those first century believers in the fires of their affliction and persecution. And here's some great news. He's walking with you today through whatever difficulties you might be facing, no matter what it is. In verse 13, Jesus is clothed with a full garment and a gold band across his chest. This describes the garment worn by the high priest. And certainly, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, Jesus has become our high priest in heaven. As our high priest, Jesus prays for us and he invites us to come to his throne of grace in time of need. Interestingly, John was the only disciple, male disciple, that stood at the cross who witnessed the crucifixion firsthand. John watched as those four Roman soldiers gambled in the shadow of the cross for the garment of Jesus. Here now, John sees the same Jesus, the glorified Lord in heaven, wearing the full-length garment of the high priest. In verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, which represents holiness. Isaiah reminds us that our sins, which were crimson red, have been, wa- have been made white as snow through Christ's forgiveness. With that, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Since this letter was intended for the believers in the seven churches specifically, but to us as well, but in that case, the fire represents how the Lord evaluates their works and their lives. And as we'll see in each of those seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus evaluates their good deeds as well as any uh, compromises or disobedience. His feet were like fine brass, and brass speaks of judgment in Scripture, much like the brazen altar at the temple. His voice sounded like many waters which reflect his authority. I remember many, many years ago, the first time I went to Yellowstone National Park and stood by the main waterfall, how impressed I was with how loud it was. That is until I visited Niagara Falls, and then it was like Yellowstone on steroids. Niagara Falls, the falls there was unbelievably loud, perhaps like the voice of Jesus here. In his right hand were seven stars, again explained to us in verse 20 as being the angels or literally the messengers of the seven churches. The Greek word for angels, also translated as messengers, oftentimes does refer to angels. However, angels are not the leaders of Christ's churches. So in this case, messengers is going to be the better translation and most likely is referring to the ministers over those seven churches. We'll talk more about that in our next study when we begin looking at those seven churches. Then the appearance of Jesus shining like the sun sounds very much like the description of Jesus at the transfiguration, the shining of his divine glory. Out of his mouth went a two-edged sword, and in the book of Hebrews, we know that this sword represents the power of his word, which is able to divide soul and spirit, 
joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then remember at his second coming in Revelation 19, we read that a sword will go out of his mouth. And so with that, the appearance of Jesus was so overwhelming that John collapsed on the ground at his feet as though he were dead. You know, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a thought about John's response here. As we've already discussed, John knew Jesus personally, obviously, during Christ's ministry. And you can make a strong argument that of all the disciples, none was apparently closer to Jesus than John was. Even so, we don't read here that John was interacting with Jesus in a casual or flippant matter, manner as some people tend to act towards Jesus today, like he's their heavenly buddy or something. Pastor John MacArthur shares the story of one faith teacher who claimed that Jesus appeared to him in his bathroom while he was at the sink shaving one morning. That same teacher claimed that they proceeded to have a lovely conversation as he continued shaving. Oh, well, as the Apostle John here, who knew Jesus personally, he presents a different response. He collapsed on the ground at the sight of Christ. And you know what? I'm going to go with the guy who actually saw Jesus, not with the guy shaving in his bathroom. Not to mention that John's response is consistent with the responses we find throughout Scripture when people encounter the living God. If we pick up anything from this chapter, it's the holiness of God. Warren Wiersbe was right when he said, happiness, not holiness, is the chief pursuit of most people today, including many professing Christians. They want Jesus to solve their problems and carry their burdens, but they don't want him to control their lives or change their character. You know, I want to mention that like some of you, I've watched uh, those videos where people are riding on scary roller coasters. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not a scary roller coaster kind of a guy. I prefer the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland. And then after that, I'm looking for the food stand where they sell those giant corn dogs. But on those wild roller coaster videos, you can see people sitting in their seats waiting to take off. Oftentimes, they're laughing nervously. Then the ride takes off and does some dramatic drop or twist. And on the video, you can see the literal fear on their faces. And then suddenly, some of them just pass out right there on the ride. In seeing this vision, John became afraid and collapsed to the ground, apparently passing out. But listen, we need not fear God in terror but we must reverence him in holiness. And also notice how Jesus gently placed his hand on John and encouraged him not to be afraid. Why did John not need to be afraid? Because it's the same Jesus who resurrected from the dead and who is alive forevermore. Jesus also holds the keys of Hades and of death. When you possess the keys to something, it represents having control and authority. Jesus has that authority over death and the grave. Jesus conquered death and the grave through his resurrection after he had defeated sin on the cross. That is why John did not need to be afraid. And as John himself wrote in his first epistle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. One of the most prominent fears that God removes after our conversion is the fear of death. I like what Pastor Alistair Begg said. He said, death for the Christian is to fall asleep in the arms of Jesus and then waking up to find out that you're home. Now in verse 19, as Jesus instructs John on what to write, we discover the outline for the book of Revelation. 
In fact, this is the only book in the Bible that contains its own natural outline. The Lord instructs John to write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so that outline looks a bit like this. The things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, the glorified Lord Jesus. The Apostle John had seen the risen Lord Jesus after his resurrection decades earlier and is now seeing him again in this vision from Patmos. Then the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the present messages of Jesus to the seven churches. Those were the seven churches there in Asia Minor. And as we'll discuss in our next study, they also represent various stages of church history, including the church of the last days. And then uh, the things which will take place after this, that's chapters 4 all the way to the end, chapter 22 of Revelation, and all of that is in the future the rapture of the church, the emergence of the Antichrist, the seven-year tribulation, <clears throat> the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, the judgment of the unsaved, and the eternal kingdom of heaven. So this book very much applies to us as last-day believers who could very well be the generation that witnesses these future events coming to pass. Let me begin to close our time out then with a story shared by Pastor Adrian Rogers. He tells of a time in Chicago many years ago when there was a nightclub literally called the Gates of Hell. Can you imagine that? And just down the street from that nightclub was Calvary Church. And as the story goes, a young man wanted to go to that nightclub one evening. So he stopped a stranger on the street and asked him, can you tell me how to get to the Gates of Hell? That stranger replied, yeah, just walk right on past Calvary and you'll reach the gates of hell. Well, spiritually speaking, the same is true today. If you're bound and determined to live your life your way and apart from God, then all you have to do is walk right past Calvary where Jesus was crucified and died for your sins and just keep going until you reach the gates of hell. Going to hell is actually quite easy. All you have to do is... Well, really, nothing. Just live your life as you please, and your sins will take care of the rest. However, if you want to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, that requires grace by faith. You will need to turn from your sins and receive God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life by faith. And once you've done that, your life will change its course as you live daily for Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that is your need, then I urge you to call out to Jesus right now and receive his offer of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> 